Hello and welcome to this latest edition of Stunt Mike. I'm Andrew McGlashan. I'm joined today by Tristan Lavaletti, Gaurav Sundaraman and Alex Malcolm as we look back on the BBL that finished at the weekend with Perth Scorchers lifting the title yet again, a record fourth time they've taken out the prize and another final against their arch rivals, Sydney Sixers. They're a team that could barely play at home this season and many of them still don't know when they'll get back out west given the ongoing border restrictions. So in many ways, a pretty extraordinary title success for the Scorchers, a very strong team. We'll delve into them a little bit over the first part of this show. Very well-rounded. They were the best team throughout the group stage of the competition, and then they got straight into the final, and they did a really good job on the Sixers in the final. So that sums it up from the Scorchers. And Tristan, I'll come to you first. You've been our man covering um, the majority of this tournament for us over the last uh, six or seven weeks. You were very impressed by the Scorchers early on. I think a tweet you put out after a game or two said, let's just hand them the title now. Um, that would have saved us all a lot of work, actually, if that had just been the case. We did have to play the remaining matches. Um, and we'll also get on to how that was a, a feat in itself a little bit later in the show. But just on the Scorchers to start with, I mean, what stood out for you early on? And were you then at all surprised at how effectively they did go on and take the title? Well, unfortunately, I didn't back them on this podcast to begin with. So I was going to come to that as well. (laughs) Sort of kicking myself uh, over that. But no, after probably two or three games into the season, it was pretty much, um, I mean, you can just tell they're pretty much loaded in every position, basically. Um, Question marks heading into the season over their firepower at the top and Curtis Patterson um, turned into uh, Ryan Lara or Adam Gilchrist or whoever you want to say that he was incredible at the top and um, basically everyone just played their part, really. Um, you know, it's a bit of a cliche. And um, for the Scorchers to, to to be on the road for 50 straight days um, was pretty incredible. I mean, they braced themselves to be on the road pretty much uh, from Christmas onwards. They are hoping to get a few games early in the season um, in Perth. Um, they got one, the, the season opener on December the 8th, and from that point on, they're on the road, but I think it um, just galvanised the group and they kind of uh, had that old uh, playbook from Justin Langer, backs against the walls, and basically did the trick. Obviously, it helps when, when you're winning, so that certainly helps the, the mood um, when you're on the road for such a long time. But, uh, yeah, it's just a really impressive performance, especially to do it on the East Coast where, you know, traditionally sometimes they're a bit, um, can be a bit patchy on some of the spinning wickets um, or slower wickets. Um, but, yeah, pretty much everything um, they did, the, the recruits they they had, someone like Peter Hatsoglu um, was superb in, in tandem with Ashen Agai, someone who could easily be forgotten. Um, he was he was brilliant um, over there. Um, so it was pretty much, I think, the, the best of their titles. Uh, might be the best BBL title ever, perhaps, and I don't think uh, you're probably going to, Hard to find a better title anywhere in T20 cricket, I think. Uh, Gaurav, I'll bring you in now. Um, just to start with, uh, what stands out to you um, from this Perth Scorchers side that makes them such a good team? Uh, one interesting fact when I looked at the numbers is that in the top 10 run-getters, uh, literally uh, Perth Scorchers don't find a place. It's Patterson at 10th uh, who's... Who just gets there, but from 11 to 20, you have the remaining four guys. You have Mitchell Mars, Ashton Turner, uh, and uh, Colin Munro. So that clearly shows it's a team team game, and you need a lot of people performing. And generally, in a league like this with 14, 15 games, beat any league, you know, 
you have certain match winners who win you like a couple of games each and that's how you go on to win titles obviously supported by a good bowling attack and like uh, tristan said they uh, the bowling attack has been exceptional from the first season i think so they never had a problem with their bowling it's their batting which kind of sometimes does well sometimes does not do well but they were very consistent and ashton turner i think i think that was the key he was a person coming back into form uh, suddenly in 2019 he was a hero and he was picked up into australian team got ipl contract got five ducks i think and uh, suddenly nobody speaking about him and for him to come back and play the way he did especially the knock in the final outstanding so these are things which generally define a team you always have heroes uh, you have different man of the match award awardees every time uh, it's a pattern with all the other leagues and good successful teams also if you take so i think that's what i really enjoyed about perth scotches always the focus is on their bowling we know their bowling would deliver but with their batting do it yes patterson came through turner came through munro had a good season so uh, i think that's the biggest uh, satisfactory uh, part for me if you if you look at it as a team you know it follows a lot of successful teams pattern alex i'll bring you in because you were at the final itself i just want to focus a bit more on that game because they were 25 for 4 um early on in that final and then um the competition defining stand between turner who gorav has mentioned and Laurie evans one of their imports um from england um did that sort of sum up um the scorches in in so many ways. I mean, we've, we've touched on the depth. We have them four down just outside the power play. Um, this guy walks in at number six, um, who was a bit of a punt as an overseas signing and plays one of the innings um, of the tournament. Does that kind of instill what this Scorchers team was about? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, and Gora mentioned the depth. You look at their top five run scorers who all scored above 340 runs for the tournament. Um Four of them struck at above 140 for the for the tournament as well. So they've actually got a new blueprint which they've come up with over the last couple of years. It was something that uh, they felt like they needed to move away from the Langer era, which was very bowler heavy, defend low scores, just make enough either chasing or batting first. They needed more firepower. They identified that. That was driven by Kate Harvey, the GM. Um, their list management strategy is built around that, and then. Adam Voges has sort of bought into that with his coaching staff. And that's why they've gone and got last year, they went and got Livingston and Roy to add firepower at the top. And they thought they needed more power in the middle and the back end to support Ashton Turner. They felt like with Patterson, Inglis, Marsh up the top, they had enough firepower in those first four overs. And the Evans pick was a just a beauty. He played a blinder. That was one of the great innings of BBL history and one of the great T20 innings. And he combined really, really well with Ashton Turner. I think people undersell Turner. I know he can be very hot and cold. His, his lean patches are as lean as they get, but his best is just about the best of any domestic player in terms of white ball, middle over batting, back end batting in Australia. His ability to find gaps, um, manipulate the strike. His running between the wickets is outstanding, but take calculated risks. He can drag guys with him. And both those guys just... They never got bogged down. They ran, I think, nine twos and a three in a nine-over stretch, which not many guys have the ability to do that. Uh, and they attacked Steve O'Keefe, which not many guys have been able to do in this BBL. So uh, it was an outstanding performance. And Adam Bo just said afterwards that Turner has extremely high cricketing IQ and, and also he was full of praise for Laurie Evans, who, who he said had had a tough tournament, batting with a broken toe and, and had had a tough time in Australia being away from his family but he delivered on the biggest stage. It was a wonderful performance. Uh, 
Uh, Tristan, I'll just come back to you for one more bit on sort of the the title success. Um, for a, a run of games in the middle of the season, there they were English. They were without English and Marsh, who got called up as COVID cover for the Test squad. They only saw Jai Richardson for the finals. Uh, the two games they played in the finals, um, uh, one game they had to delve into the reserve pool to find a a wicketkeeper for half yeah. a game, which which got them into a little bit of trouble. They, they only ended up losing a, a bash boost points. It was the kind of the most meaningless um, sanction I think you'll ever see in, in cricket history. But um, but just in terms of those three big outs they had for stages, I guess that highlights the depth and the confidence of those guys that came in to fill those positions. Yeah, I mean, that's just been something... Scorch has had for many years just a depth, um, a core they can build around. I mean, guys were missing from the final. Matt Kelly, I mean, he was superb for a lot of the season. He took 14 wickets in six matches. Um, Cameron Bancroft, I mean, he started the season um, as an opener. He was backed in uh, by Adam Voges originally, and then um, Patterson kind of took that spot by, um, by himself. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they just were pretty much loaded in, in every position, um, whether it was at the top, middle, um, quicks, of course. I mean, they had Tamal Mills as well, easily forgotten, um, but he was a real key part of that early success. And I think that start of the season was so important. I mean, they banked wins. Um, I think they had six wins on the trot to start the season, and that became invaluable once COVID hit. I mean, they were also affected by COVID and some injuries. Um, but by that stage, they pretty much nailed down a top two spot. So it probably didn't impact them as much as other teams. And, and they're pretty fortunate by the time finals rolled around. They were full strength in complete contrast to the Sixers. So it pretty much uh, all panned out um, nicely for them. But I mean, that start of the season was just unbelievable, um, especially that purple patch from Mitch Marsh as well. I mean, he only played half the tournament, but he's probably the arguably the most impactful player. You mentioned COVID disruption there, um, Tristan, and that's sort of the next bit I wanted to just talk about, just in terms of the fact that we did get to the end of the season. We had a full home and away um, tournament in the end. There were moments when that looked doubtful, particularly in the early in the new year, uh, when both the Stars and the Heat were were really badly hit by COVID. Every team um, did get hit by at least a case or two in the end. I know you did some delving around to do as a piece on how the whole thing kept going. I mean, just what was your biggest takeaway from from those conversations you were having? Do you, did it did it get close to not finishing at one point? What do you think there was a chance that it almost did have to come to a halt there? Do you think we were probably one more team away, another team being decimated from someone having to go, hang on, we need to call a halt here? Yeah, I think it was pretty close. I mean, obviously their intention was to push on um, as much as they, they could and finish it on time, which they did um, remarkably. Uh, but there was a moment there where a few teams were affected uh, quite badly. Um, luckily, uh, I think the Heat and, and the Stars were the, the two uh, main teams affected, but it wasn't quite at the same time. There was a couple of other teams, the Thunder, I think, um, had a few plays out, but they had enough players to... Uh, to, to kind of um, push through. So I suppose if there was probably three or four teams at the same time um, really badly affected as like the Stars in the Heat, probably. I think that would have been the tip quite get there and they were able to move to the Victoria Hub, which I guess helped in terms of um, less 
less travel. Um, they had tighter restrictions in terms of uh, players and staff had to be in small groups, two and three. So um, if there was uh, COVID hit, it would just be amongst those small groups, not um, outbreaks uh, for the whole team. Um, but still, I mean, there's no doubt, I guess it's always going to be the integrity question. Uh, stars, a couple of their players weren't publicly happy with uh, what happened uh, to them. They only missed out by one point, of course, um, to the finals. Um, uh, and they had to, had to use a lot of club players and players uh, most of us haven't probably heard of. Um, and obviously a lot of the games had to be um, played in neutral venues uh, and at odd, odd times. I think there was a couple of 10 a.m. starts and a lot of empty um, grandstands. So whether or not that has um, affected, I guess, the perception of BBL, which is already being sort of deemed um, on the nose a little bit, I think, from kind of, more casual fans, more maybe mainstream sport fans in this country. So um, there's no doubt there's a feeling that I think from uh, the BBL officials that a bit of a sigh of relief they got through it um, and able to finish on time. Um, but there's a feeling that next year is going to be pretty a pretty pivotal or next season is going to be quite pivotal and uh, they're really going to have to bounce back and after a couple of very, very difficult seasons. Alex, I'll just just bring you in on this. I mean, what did you feel about the the season continuing? Do you think it was a a, a story of of success against the odds in the end, or did things get a a, a bit too um, a bit too close to to making it a bit of a lottery? I think it was a bit of a lottery. Uh, credit to the teams that were able to manage their way through. I do know, speaking to the Scorchers, that. They had very strict protocols, but a number of teams and, and Tristan sort of um, gave some really good insights in the piece that he wrote. And I recommend any of our listeners to go and read it, particularly around the challenges that the Stars had. Um, Blair Crouch and Nick Cummins, the uh, general manager and CEO, working sort of 16 hour days to try and get a team together. And I know the Scorchers had a WhatsApp group uh, that was going between their medical staff and their um and their coaching staff that, that was going at a rate of knots every morning to check who had PCR tests and who had rapid tests. And those that were working in the West who couldn't get over to the East were, were doing 5 a.m. starts every morning to check that their player availability. So it was a really difficult, challenging period, I feel, for everyone involved. And I guess Cricket Australia were kind of hamstrung. I mean, the broadcasters have paid for content every night in this period, this January Christmas holiday period and the ratings were still pretty strong and the broadcasters just wanted the games to go ahead no matter what. And unfortunately, CA had to find a way and the clubs bore the brunt of that by having to push through regardless of the uh, player availability that each of them had. And it was a really impressive and mammoth effort by all of the clubs to get through, but I'm not sure it's sustainable to have a competition suffer that badly from losing their big name players and having it as such a lottery like it was during that middle period of the tournament. Well, hopefully this is the last summer when that is is a risk. Um, although we were probably saying that twelve months ago as well. So yes. we'll see. We'll see what next season does bring up in terms of uh, any challenges like that. I just want to talk about one or two of the other teams now we won't go through them all because it was a long tournament and uh yeah we've only got a certain amount of time on this, this podcast but I, there's, just, there's just three other teams I do just want to touch on first of all it's the strikers and Gaurav I, I'll just bring you straight back in here and um, it was a team we talked about 
in the build-up, and of course, we talked about Rashid Khan, and you said how it's almost like it's almost like uh, the game becomes a 16-over game when you're playing a team with Rashid Khan in because of four his four overs. Now he signed off in style, six for seventeen in the last game he played before going on to inter- international duty, and then the strikers managed to maintain this incredible run that took them all the way to the Challenger final. Um, as much as Scorchers winning a title was a terrific story, and congratulations to them. That run of the strikers, to me, almost felt like the story of the tournament. They found, having been bottom of the table early on, and I think most people wrote them off going through, they really found a way to win, and players coming through who we perhaps didn't expect. I mean, Peter Siddle, ageless, bowled terrifically again. Matt Short as an opener, and then a, a spin bowler with it, with his overs there. Um, Ian Cobain, one of these COVID-related signings, came in. Um, Henry Thornton. Uh, one game for the Sixers four years ago comes in and bowls superbly. I mean, what did you think of that story as them, I guess, making the most of the resources they had and actually showing that they're a bit more than just Rashid Khan? Yeah, so one thing about Rashid Khan is it's you can't just win tournaments if you have Rashid Khan. He's actually not won a tournament uh, with more, any of his franchises. If you actually look at the numbers, even the once, uh, one-time strikers won, I remember that. Rashid is not part of the finals today. So, uh, what happens is that you need to build attacks around Rashid Khan. You need to build a team around Rashid Khan. Yes, he will help you get there, but you need some support. And I think they have that. Uh, they've been having that pretty consistently, to be very honest. It's not like strikers uh, are like renegades by finishing last. So, uh, this time they started off slowly. Uh, but what really impressed me was the fact that they got some bash boost points. In the end, that's what kind of helped them qualify. These are small things, but it's in the rules, right? You know, the Stars won one game more, but still they didn't make it. So, uh, I don't know whether it was part of the team strategy or not, but these are small things within the team that uh, makes a big difference. Hey, just go for the best boost point. And, uh, and again, when you look at the stats, I think it's a very bowling-heavy team. A team which relies on their bowling more than their batting. Even Matthew shot a couple of games. I remember uh, uh, he, was, he scored like 30-odd and he was man of the match. Uh, a couple of very, uh, I won't say like contributions which people recognize from the outside. They're very, very small contributions. Just 30 and a couple of wickets here and there. And I know you're going to bring about smart stats. No, no, I was, no, was going to bring it as a very valuable point, actually, about Matt Short, because it did create a lot of chat on one of our internal groups. The game that Rashid Khan took six for 17, um, our cricking for MVP, um, was was Matt Short that game. He, I think he hit 27 off 15 balls at the top of the order, took two wickets, one of which was Ben Duckett at what was what was calculated to be still um, a, a quite key period of the game. Now, I'm still going to say I disagree with the computer on that one. I, it'll probably come back and bite me in the years to come when computers take over the world completely. But just uh, just the more broad point you were making about those sort of performances, that sort of, that sort of stat does kind of show it, doesn't it? That a quick 30 and two wickets from a cricket all like, Matt Short can be really important. Yeah, and actually, if you go back and look at the other games of strikers, there were a couple more games where Short was the MVP. It was not just this game, and it was because of Rashid's performance, maybe it looked uh, uh, slightly less. But if you look at the next couple of games, I think two of the next three games, Short had the, uh, was the MVP. So these are very subtle contributions. And uh, even Peter Siddle, uh, the matches whenever I was able to ca- uh, watch, his ability to execute the Yorker, I think not many bowlers have that. It's a very underrated skill. And I immediately looked whether Cyril has signed up in the auction roster for the IPL, but he's not. Because that was a skill which I think 
you can't really measure by bowling figures and economy rates. Whenever I used to see, he used to land it. He was not too, he didn't bowl those uh, rank of full tosses or down the leg balls. He was very good. I think, uh, I think that's a hallmark of someone who's been doing this again and again and again. And uh, these are small things, Nasha, but I think strikers like scotchers have, uh, uh, they don't rely on one or two individuals. They don't have like superstars. Yes, I see this one, but, uh, you need people to contribute in multiple ways and they managed to do that uh, very well. So, a very, very impressive run and uh, yeah, they're usually a top five team. Uh, I think they're usually a top four team also. This time they started off badly and uh, thanks to other teams, uh, they kind of managed to make it. So, hats off to strikers. They were hit badly early on by losing both Travis Head and Alex Carey to the Ashes, which is something we'll come back on to towards the end of the show when we just look ahead to perhaps the future of the BBL. But just the next team I just want to talk about uh, briefly. I'll come to you, Alex. Um, they finished bottom again. Um, loath to criticise a team for where they finished too much this season, given all the challenges. But we did think they had certainly a bowling attack to make an impression this year. And it, the Renegades, it didn't it didn't really work out for them. Pattinson didn't finish the tournament. Uh, Kane Richardson missed the last few games. Um, they had other COVID and, and injury issues. I mean, it, they, they, they tried to rebuild going into this season. Is it, is it another rebuild needed now going into next season? They're in a really tricky spot under new coach David Saker. He's sort of inherited a list. I do think they need to make some changes. The, the problem they've got is they've got guys right at the end of their career and guys right at the start of their career, and they do not have any uh, guys in the in the middle phases that are well established with with plenty of years in front of them, like Scorchers do, um, potentially like Strikers do, like Sydney Sixers do, even like Thunder do. Uh, you look at their run scorers, Finch and Marsh, coming towards the end of their career. Marsh only played seven games this year because he tore his car playing in the Sheffield Shield prior to Christmas. And he's in the last uh, year of his three-year deal there, and he's 38. And then you look at uh, the worry for them with their batting is Mackenzie Harvey, uh, Jake Fraser McGurk and Sam Harper. Those guys have been invested in over the last three years. None of them have really done a lot in the BBL. And and my concern with Harvey and Fraser McGurk is they actually haven't done a lot at the level below either. I know I know you roll your eyes at me, Nasher, about <laughs> great cricket all. in Australia. But those two guys do not have a single first grade hundred between them in their life at this stage. Now Tom Rogers, who was called into the stars, if you'll remember, as a COVID replacement, has made seven first-grade hundreds in the last 12 months, including four this season and three in a row. And you watched him bat on a, a 24 hours notice coming into a big bash game at the Junction Oval, facing the best attack in the competition. And he made 35 off 25, uh, 32 off 25 and looked at, right at home. A guy in his mid-20s who is... Uh, dominating the level below, and he's ready to go. Now, there's plenty of stories like that around Australian cricket, and we got a few opportunities to see that through the COVID replacement system. You know, other ones like Hayden Kerr at the Sixers, who's established himself at grade level and, and look every bit at the level coming up to BBL uh, cricket. Lockie Pfeffer made an outstanding half century for the Heat. So the investment in youth, I think... You know, the Renegades, if they're legitimate about winning a title, they need some more mid-tier players uh, from an Australian perspective. And then they've got to be better at recruiting some better overseas that are going to fit them a little bit better. They need some they need some batting um, to support. Their, their attack's okay. 
obviously they need to have availability with Richardson and, and Pattinson perhaps in the future. Their spinners were very good when they were needed. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's a big task for David Saker and the Renegades to try and work out what they need. And he may have to overhaul that list again. Uh, Cameron Boyce certainly signed off in style with the uh, four gets in four balls in what's emerged yes. to be he's, he's off the he's off contract now and, and they doesn't seem to be going back I'd be very surprised if there's not another BBL club lining up to uh, sign him he look, he's a, he's always I've always rated him very highly and uh, yeah I'm sure we'll see him somewhere next next season the one other team I just wanted to delve into and we kind of have to really because I think three of us tipped them um, as title contenders um, uh, two months ago um, and, and they teased us a couple of times uh, they had the leading run score in the tournament I'm talking about Hobart Hurricanes of course they had the leading scorer in Ben McDermott but really it just didn't click for them consistently this tournament and they got uh, and they got beaten comfortably in the in their in their first first final um Tristan you were on the Hurricanes bandwagon with us or I think really your heart was always with the Scorchers <laughs> even though you publicly said Hurricanes um but just it, it kind of McDermott was head and shoulders above and they just they just seemed to lack lack consistency elsewhere they were hit by some injuries in the bowling attack as well um yeah a season where the the sum of their parts didn't quite seem to come together yeah the batting just never quite clicked I mean it looked really good on paper um McDermott obviously was the MVP of the tournament he was superb um but it was pretty much got to a point where if he failed they really struggled um Darcy Short was moved around the order a little bit he just could never get going he he stayed at the crease for a long time. It wasn't like he was getting out early, but he just couldn't find the, the fluency or the, um, the sort of strokes he was kind of known for a few years ago. Um, Peter Hanskin as well was another guy just could never quite get going. And um, Matthew Wade was sort of hit and miss and he took a bit of time out for sort of personal leave at one point. So they just couldn't couldn't quite get going. The guy I thought who I actually uh, got wrong, but I said it was going to be the MVP, Tim David. Um, should have gone for uh, his teammate, of course. But um, Tim David, I thought he looked probably um, the most likely out of um, the Hurricanes and the Lord of Batsmen, but they persisted with him as a finisher. Um, and I thought they missed a trick a little bit. I thought they could have at least tried him up the order. Um, at least later in the season, perhaps to get the, the batting order going. Um, but they kind of persisted with him at six and as the, the finisher. And, and it, sure, he did have a, a few pretty um, eye-catching innings, but I think there was a chance for him to to potentially bat up the order and maybe just spark the, the batting. Um, so, yeah, pretty disappointing season. They just they always seem like the team um, that could make a run but never it just never happened and um obviously a disappointing um end for adam griffith so he's um stood down so um yeah i guess it's time for a bit of a change and and see what happens next season Paul. indeed interesting times with with adam griffith moving on Gov, i'll just bring you back in quickly about the hurricanes because when we looked at them pre-season um mcdermott short wade hanscom david um couple of others in there um it looked very strong what 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 just from your watching from a distance and I appreciate you probably didn't see all the games did you feel they were missing a certain type of batter there or was it just that enough of them didn't click alongside McDermott um, and then they suffered a little bit from having some injuries in the in the bowling attack I think if you look at it most uh teams the opening combination is kind of tells you how the team is going to go. Very, very rarely in leagues, you look at 
teams which go on to win or uh, uh, go on to the playoffs actually have a poor opening combination. So, uh, I think that's why they, it's been very reliant on Wade and Short for quite some time now. And, uh, and due to the absence and the fact that you keep stopping and changing the moment you start losing, that is something which I thought is the problem. Otherwise, as a team, uh, and as a team, there's nothing much to complain. They have all the kind of skill sets which are required for the T20 team. Uh, you have uh, uh, really good fast bowlers, you have uh, decent spinners and you have uh, a decent amount of left-right uh, batters. So, I think it is just a matter of not, I guess, playing together uh, consistently and not having the same team. That, that matters a lot in leagues like this. The moment you kind of chop and change, even like we discussed earlier, Perth Scorchers had the least kind of, they were least affected compared to a lot of other teams. And that naturally helps. So, if everybody knows their roles, it's clear. Uh, Darcy Short plays a very, very important role for Hurricanes, at least from uh, over the last three, four seasons. He's been the core. Ben McDermott has contributed, but McDermott was always second fiddle, not the main player. But now, suddenly, he's become the main player. And uh, yeah, that will not kind of give you consistent performances. I think in a game against Stars, the last league game, uh, that can be a separate podcast uh, by itself. I think that kind of... Uh, uh, showed how their season were going. So many drop catches and generally that uh, it kind of showed again in the playoffs uh, against the strikers. So, I think they were low on confidence and, you know, they just couldn't get any kind of momentum. They certainly felt the full force of Glenn Maxwell in that, yeah, in that extraordinary final league game. Just a shame there was nothing riding on the game, although you suspect that's one reason why Maxwell could play the way um, he did, although you wouldn't put, put it past him to score like that in, in a game that mattered. Um, I just want to focus in on a couple of players um, or a few players who stood out during the tournament. Some we've chatted about already uh, when we've looked at the teams, but just in a bit more detail. And we'll start with Ben McDermott. Um, and I think I personally think it's a really good story, the tournament he's had and get back in the Australian fold. He, he had a really tough time in the Windies and Bangladesh tour. He was injured. He missed the birth of his first child um, back here in, in Australia. Um, he's gone away. He's come back from that. He, he's come back, a looks like a better player this season. Alex, do you see a better player in him or do you just see a player that, that that's found his form again and he's always had this, had this in him as a... Um, uh, as a top order batter, obviously the latter. Actually, he's been incredibly consistent over the last few years, uh, and he has been shuffled up and down the order a little bit at the Hurricanes. Uh, and obviously, he's had to bat down the order in his limited opportunities when he first started in the Australian T Twenty team, and then he got shifted up the order in those two tours in both T20I and ODI cricket. He is an opener in white ball cricket. I think it suits him best, gives him the most time. He can settle in in the power play, use his power to hit through hit through the field. Uh, he just looks like he knows his game and trusts his game. He's done a lot of work with Jeff Vaughan down there in uh, Tasmania, working on his batting and his technique and his temperament. Uh, he's going to be a, a real player of the future, I think, for Australia, particularly in white ball cricket. The question is, where does he fit? Um, obviously, he's had a lot of his success at the top of the order, and we know, and Gaurav can speak to this, that Australia produces a lot of openers at, in T20 cricket, but their issues tend to be a little bit further down the list. But after this next T20 World Cup, you'd think probably David Warner and Aaron Finch will move on, and Matthew Wade will as well. So there's going to be opportunities at the top of the order, and Australia will need to find a combination in the likes of McDermott and Philippi or McDermott and Inglis or Philippi and Inglis and McDermott in that top three looks pretty potent. And he, he's one who could definitely 
go up the next level. I think the one thing that the one criticism that you hear a little bit around the traps is he probably needs to improve his fitness. So he's a better um, runner between the wickets uh, and maybe more in four-day cricket. He's made a lot of half centuries at four-day level, but hasn't been able to convert. But, you know, he's got the capability of making hundreds in T20 cricket. And if you can bat through 20 overs in T20 games, you are supremely fit and have an ability to, um, to make big scores consistently. So, yeah, he's a very promising player for Australia. I, I believe, um, from memory, that Gaurav is unwilling to ever discuss the role of Australia finisher again after what happened in the last T20 World Cup. So we won't get him to reopen the old wounds of Marcus Thornis and Matthew Wade being the heroes of Australia's World Cup campaign. We'll maybe come back to that in nine months' time when we're building up to the World Cup down here. Uh, just one another player I'd like to focus on. I'll come to Tristan for this one because um, it's a case of getting in before they were famous. Uh, this one did a very nice interview with Hayden Kerr uh, midway through the season when he he was already the Sixers leading wicket taker. He then went on to play that extraordinary innings as a fill-in opening bat in that final at the SCG. Uh, just an astonishing game of cricket that for so many reasons. Uh, his bowling held up as well throughout the season. Um, he's been a terrific story this season, uh, Tristan, and he looks he looks ready now. He's signed a three-year deal with the Sixers. He, he looks like another like a real find off their production line. Yeah, I mean, he's another guy's got an incredible story in terms of uh, a lot of injuries, um, which he grew up basically um, as a as a bowler um, in junior cricket, but then a series of injuries from around 18 years of age made him have to focus on batting. And so that's actually been um, where he's kind of focused his attention on the last few years um, as a batter. And, and you can obviously tell um, he's got a lot of talent and, Basically, he's a genuine all-rounder in terms of when I asked him, is he a better batter or bowler, he, he genuinely doesn't know. He's, he feels comfortable um, with either. Um, this season, with the bat, he was basically the number eight. So um, he knew he was going to be batting at that position heading into the season. So he focused a lot on finishing and he did win a game against um, the strikers, uh, coincidentally, early in the season with the six um, to win a game. So... Um, he's adept at, at that, but quite clearly he can uh, open as well. And he did that um, at the BBL, I think, two years ago for one innings. I think he, he was an opener. Um, but to do that under pressure was just incredible, um, given the stakes and the way he really paced himself and just a lot of um, assurity. So he just seemed like someone who'd, who'd been around a long time. So um, he's obviously got a lot of confidence. Um, he's he was very well spoken when I when I spoke to him, so I think he's got some some confidence about it now. Um, and he also still has dreams of playing you know, longer form cricket. He had a pretty good Shield debut um, in November, um, where I think he made a half century as well. So he's a guy to really look um, look forward to in the future, perhaps in all formats, but certainly T Twenty cricket. And I guess we'll see. If, IPL comes knocking. I know he's uh, putting his uh, hat in the ring there, so who knows? He could be uh, could be a very uh, rich man very shortly. Uh, I'll bring Gaurav back in a moment about the IPL. I just want to ask a more broad question about that. But just first, um, and I think it's quite telling the point you make there about um, Hayden Kerr being, he's still young, but he's not right at the beginning. He's 25 yeah. now. And as Alex mentioned before about going back, learning your craft, having to, having to do some hard yards, that, Hayden Kerr seems to be a very good example of where that's, that that's paid off. Uh, just one other player I want to throw in 
before we move on to a couple of broader questions, um, and I might jump back to Alex just just for this one, um, is another another one who actually really impressed me this season. He was given a leadership role at the Sydney Thunder when Chris Green went down with COVID. Jason Sanger, he's a player we've seen a lot of over the last few years. We've seen him make hundreds at Shield Cricket for New South Wales. You've always felt there's a very, very good player in there, um, bowls handy leg spin as well. Just felt this season, Alex, that he went to, I'm not saying he's near the finished product yet, but just got a bit back towards that level that the under-19 era got everyone very excited about him. And then that, and I thought that those leadership qualities, he's still, what, 22, 23, still very young. thought that, that really shone through when Thunder were stripped of a few of their uh, big players for a few games. Yeah, he's been on the bubble for a few years there and running the drinks a lot for the Thunder. Um, Chris Rogers at, at Victoria talks about it regarding Fraser McGurk, actually, about these under-19 stars having taken the elevator up into professional cricket and he wants to see a few of them take the stairs and, and actually do some hard yards. And Jason Sanger is one of these guys and he actually spoke, I think, in, in a couple of uh, interviews about the fact that he, he'd sort of been moping and moaning about his, uh, his lack of opportunities and felt like he was a better player than he was and he actually awoke to himself and realised, you know what, I'm not good enough at the moment. I need to work a lot harder. I need to improve my skills across all forms, but particularly in T20 cricket. And it's amazing what an opportunity can do for you, getting a chance in that innings against the strikers at at Adelaide Oval, where he just took the ball by the horns and played an incredible innings after a pretty slow start. He just took the power surge and and, uh, took the strikers apart. And then from there, just confidence snowballed and grew upon itself. And then he obviously had the leadership um, thrust upon him when a few of the senior guys went down. So he could be a good story that comes out of this. Some of these guys have have had some opportunities probably before their time and and have struggled as a result. Sanger is one of those. Um, I would say Jack Edwards at the Sixers is probably in the similar category. They're a similar age bracket, came through the same under-19s program um, their records, unfortunately, are going to take a hit overall in all three forms because they were thrown in early and have struggled. But And it'll, it'll be hard for them to recoup that, but they will learn a lot from those opportunities and those experiences. And it's certainly paid dividends for Sanger. He's understood that he has to work a lot harder, has to train smarter, has to improve his game in different ways to be able to be a consistent performer at domestic level and, and hopefully... Uh, he moves forward from here, but certainly later in the tournament and, and when I watched him in the finals, uh, he, he really looked right at home and, and played really well and looked at a different player to what he's been in the past. Um, Gaurav, I will come back to you now because part of the reason I wanted to chat about a few players was to sort of lead into what sort of impact, uh, given the timing this year, given that there's an, an IPL mega auction coming up in just a couple of weeks, how much notice will franchises have taken of the BBL is it a tournament is it a tournament that is looked down on quite as much as it's perhaps felt like it's looked down on in Australia where it, and we do know it's a tournament that's struggling a little bit but individually do the, the players do they still so for that for example a Hayden Kerr or Ben McDermott could they really be now sought after because they've had strong BBL seasons so the one thing about the BBL and the IPL is very few success stories have been seen. A lot of players have been picked, but nobody's really performed at the uh, level at which you're kind of expected to. You need to kind of win games and be part of the 11 consistently. And we haven't seen that at all. It's been quite a while to see a BBL star breakthrough. So having said that, there's certain skill sets like Hayden Kerr, who's a left-arm fast bowler, which is not very available in India in plenty. 
And that's always a skill which an IPL team looks for. And they like to, you saw Jason Berendorf get a couple of good gigs with the Bombay once. And he didn't play for Chennai, but he got a gig. So uh, you saw Jai Richardson and Riley Meredith uh, get a gig last time, but it didn't go well because there's so many other factors in India in terms of the price point at which you're picked, the pressure. Then there's so much due when you play here, which is not very something which the players are used to. Uh, and this time, apparently, the IPL is going to be held only in Bombay, which is like a batter's paradise where you'd say the average score is around 200. So you need bowlers to suddenly come from a BBL environment and come and play here. It's not easy. So that is why I think still people would be a bit careful while picking these players. And due to the fact that certain skill sets are not available in plenty, like a wicketkeeper batter is not available now in India. Very few players are there. Similarly, left-arm fast bowlers, which is why Hayden Kerr uh, kind of fits that. And you know, you like such players who do well in uh, critical matches. If if you know a four-over bowler can open the bat and score 92 or 90-odd runs, uh, I think that's a skill which you want to take a punt on. So, none of these players will go for a huge sum of money, especially it's a big auction. These guys will come in on day two. and But I'm sure there'll be a couple of uh, uh, players who are picked, but I don't see uh, a large chunk of players being picked uh, just based on the BBL performance. But I do hear Hayden Kerr has uh, been, uh, as in a few franchises, are interested in him. Ben McDermott also, because he can wicket keep as well. And uh, Matthew Wade's been around for too long and he's never been picked. So I don't see him uh, uh, get a big deal uh, this time around. Just while we have you, Gaurav, um, and just what do you think the interest will be in the big A-list name Australians who haven't, I can't remember how many of them are actually retained amongst the retained names, but those that are back in the auction, we know Mitchell Stark isn't going to be one of them again. But how much interest do you think there'll be in the in the A-list um, Australian names this year, given that some of them are now World Cup winners, do, 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 does that increase their value in the eyes of the IPL? It does, but I think personally, if you ask me, it shouldn't. Uh, because uh, none of them have... Uh, I was looking at Mitchell Marsh is expected to get a lot of money. Uh, he's played 23 or 27 IPL games since 2011. Remember, Jeff Marsh uh, picked him uh, when he was a coach of the Pune team way back in 2011. So till now we haven't seen one performance for Mitchell Mars, which is uh, which an IPL franchise can be like proud of. Uh, he's just come into his own. So sometimes you know players peak late. Uh, so people want to still take that uh, punt uh, with a particular player. Maybe Mitchell Marsh is at his peak. Let's uh, make use of it. A good environment. Maybe he's under Ricky Ponting. Uh, if he plays for Delhi, uh, he could be a replacement for someone like a Marcus Steinis. Uh, so. That matters a lot. I think Steiner's game improved a lot because he was playing under the wings of Ricky Ponting. So all that matters, Nasher. So if a Marsh goes to the right team, uh, maybe he could be that uh, superstar which everybody's been waiting for to see what Marsh is capable of. Uh, otherwise, you're going to see googly bowlers come in as soon as Marsh comes into bat and uh, uh, get him out. So yeah, Marsh, Pat Cummins, these guys, Stephen Smith will get deals. All these uh, guys will uh, get deals. But I'm looking forward to one uh, Mr. David Warner. He has been out of action uh, for the last IPL and then suddenly his form went up. He, he's a captain. He's won an IPL. So there's a lot of multiple opinions about David Warner, the personality. Uh, how will he fit in a team? How can he lead a bunch uh, of uh, lead a franchise again? But I think Warner is going to be the uh, big, uh, big stake player this time. Well, that's a great segue into my final 
point that I just want to chat about, and we will try and keep this quite brief. Uh, it could go on for hours, and we'll have a piece about it on the site in the coming weeks, hopefully. But just um, picking a name like David Warner there, who's who's everyone's excited about about the IPL, hasn't played the BBL for Donkey's years. I can't remember the year that he did. He did play his handful of games. M- must be nine nine years ago now, and. So coming back to the local competition, I'll go to Alex first. Does that, and I'm not singling out David Warner here, he's a first-choice Australian player, and both that, and the, so Australia's cricket and the BBL are both competing for the same window. But does that go to highlight the issue, one of the issues that the BBL is facing? And has this season just gone, and we can obviously talk about the Steve Smith saga a little bit, has that brought again to the, into, into, into people's consciousness that there has to be a better way of trying to at least get some representation from Australia's best players into the Big Bash? There has to be. It is crazy to think that Australia's best players and those that participated and won a World Cup weren't playing in the Big Bash. So Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood, Mitchell Stark, Steve Smith, David Warner were not playing in the BBL. It, it just... The competition is is not going to improve to the level that Cricket Australia want it to be and is not going to get that broad cut through that they, that they hope and, and that standing every summer if those guys aren't participating in some part. Now, we understand and we know that the way the BBL works, it wants to be in that window, the, the December-January period when the two marquee test matches are on, the Boxing Day test and the New Year's test. But Cricket Australia have to be better at avoiding scheduling another test match or further test matches in mid-Jan. And they have to find a way to avoid scheduling white ball series in that period and then allow the test players to have a little bit of rest post that um, New Year's test and then play the back end of the BBL. they They have to find a way to do it. And the other element to that is that and these are ongoing discussions, uh, certainly amongst the clubs and the competition more broadly. Uh, the clubs and the competition need to work out a way where it's understood that these guys won't be available for the early part of the tournament. So perhaps they shouldn't be taking up a large chunk of the salary cap. The clubs shouldn't have to pay uh, a Mitch Marsh or whoever it might be to a huge top dollar sum out of their salary cap and not have him available. Um, so they could be tied to the clubs. Steve Smith's a perfect example of this. Um, and, you know, Travis Head and, and Alex Carey were unavailable for the whole season, but the strikers paid them a lot of money to be on their list. Uh, they have to find a way to have those guys associated with clubs, but outside the salary cap, and then they're available when they come in and paid per per game or whatever it might be. So there, there's some options. There are things that are being talked about, but I agree with you, Nash, that they have to find a way to get their big stars playing because it's just criminal that, you know, the World Cup winners aren't playing in the BBL. It's incredible to think, really. Yeah, have excellent Zoom etiquette. You have your hand up. Yeah, I just wanted to ask all of you, why is that uh, the BBL is not looking for the transparent system, a draft system, to kind of pick players, uh, have a pool of, tell the, tell the team that, hey, this could be a problem in the uh, till the COVID world is over. Why can't we have a pool of 25 players per team, have a proper draft system, pick the players, plan uh, well in advance and then uh, just keep it as transparent. It's very hard for casual fans, even people like me who are hardcore, who has access to a database. Still, I, I can't find uh, which player plays for which team. Sometimes they play for two teams. 
is there a way by which uh, i just feel that could be, why isn't there a draft system and is it a, is that a big challenge have you guys discussed it have you spoken to anybody i just wanted to know are you talking about a draft system um to sort of start afresh with squads or for overseas players because the latter was discussed for this season it fell over for issues including covid they are going to look at an overseas draft again for next year is that what you're talking about or for other players not well? just overseas for everybody because that gives you uh, enough uh, options about availability it gives you uh, enough understanding of who's in demand uh, it helps the young players like alex had mentioned a few players from the renegades who have not been were getting gigs and there are other players who are much better so all this could be kind of uh, solved if uh, you have a proper draft system like the cpl does uh, a lot of other leagues also do that so i was just wondering if those things uh, could ever come in Consider Like BBL successful and ten year what it's the tenth or twelfth year now so uh, yeah yeah one of the issues Gaurav is that there's a development arm linked to the BBL clubs because they're linked to the state teams uh, I know there are obviously two teams in Melbourne and two teams in Sydney but they both franchises are actually linked under the um, umbrella of the state association. And the development of players and developing homegrown players is actually a big part of some of the BBL franchises' um, planning and, and list management strategy. And some of the clubs do like to have um, loyal loyalty factors and, and have players linked to them long-term. And also, in the case of the overseas players, there's three or four clubs that are pushing back on the draft. Adelaide Strikers are one because... They don't really want Rashid Khan playing for anybody else and Rashid wants to stay at the strikers. So they don't want to have a situation like the IPL where players are rotating teams on a regular basis. They want to create those legacy players and they also want to have the, the development arm as well. So it's a challenge. I hear what you're saying and I agree with you in part, but it's something that the clubs are pushing back on, which is a bit of a surprise, but I can understand some of the elements of it. Uh, Tristan, um, I'll just come to you now. Um, and I know we've sort of chatted earlier and sort of uh, you're going to work through some of these um, things for us about the future of the BBL. But j- just quickly, do you think there's a silver bullet for the BBL? And, or is there, a, is there certainly under this current broadcast deal a real limit in terms of what can be done? I mean, length of the tournament is the thing that's so often mentioned. Um, do, you, do you think there's really much drastic um, surgery that can be done to it in the next couple of years? I think they've got to, I guess, BBL have to figure out whether they want to overhaul the whole competition or basically um, remain as it is with maybe a few tweaks. Um, It feels like it is a pretty pivotal time for the BBL. And um, I think both Alex and Gore have kind of nailed it in terms of Alex saying how there should be a basically a dedicated window for the the BBL and ideally you would want the, the Sydney test match to be the kind of the the end of the the, the test summer and you've got probably two or three weeks they've uh, open for the BBL and hopefully the best players can play so they can build a bit of momentum into the finals um, so I think in an ideal world that would be the some kind of solution I suppose um, in terms of getting the best Australian players playing which we obviously desperately need we can't have another Steve Smith fiasco. I mean, that was pretty damaging for the, for the, for the BBL. Um, but uh, Gaurav also, I think, was, was quite accurate when he said it, it is pretty confusing. I think most people, um, if you just ask casual fans on the street who plays for who, it, they wouldn't know. I mean, it is quite hard to know. We've got one, you know, international players coming for five or six game stints and 
um, Oz players coming in and out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly um, what can be done about that. It's, that's the whole problem of, of the, the tournament. But it feels like some really hard decisions need to be made during this off-season because everyone um, does realise that it's pretty pivotal stage for the for the competition and it's, I guess, lost a little bit. It's lasted from five, six years ago. Maybe you could argue that it probably peaked too soon and having crowds of, you know, 80,000 at the MCG and, uh, you know, five, six years ago was maybe it was, that was probably um, created an unrealistic standard. But still, I think uh, we can all agree that the last few seasons, even with the, the COVID uh, problems, have probably been um, understanded. We'll we'll wrap this up there for now. Just one interesting theory that was put to me um, early in the season of a, of a possible solution because obviously they there's this thought of wanting to have enough enough games to to make the tournament compelling enough, and that perhaps it did move past the it became too big for the smaller structure it was a few years ago. One idea that was put to me is if they if they did somehow find um, uh, two more teams, and then everyone just played everybody once in a season would that be a decent number of matches? And then you go into a, a final series. So maybe in a perverse way, maybe if it gets bigger, it can get smaller. Maybe that's an interesting one they can look at. I can't believe that they'll find two more teams. Um, but um, but yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens over the coming years with the with the BBL. As you've all said, it does feel like a very interesting time now. And also key to all this is that negotiations of the next broadcast deal will be starting very soon. They've probably already started behind closed doors. It's halfway through, I believe, now the big deal that was signed, the billion-dollar deal that was signed um, a few years ago. So, And as ever in cricket now, that will drive everything, the, the dollar signs and everything. So it'll be very interesting to see how this tournament looks in three or four years' time. Well, like I say, we'll wrap this up there for now. Thank you to Tristan, to Alex and Gaurav for their time. I hope you've all enjoyed this wrap of the BBL. It was another long season, but everybody made it just about this time. There were moments when um, I think all of us probably wondered whether we would get to the end of the tournament for many reasons, but we did. And Scorchers were worthy winners. They are now the most successful team in BBL history with four titles and must just say a fantastic season for their franchise overall, having also won the WBBL as well. So terrific summer for the Perth Scorchers and with all the other issues they've got going on over in the West at the moment. Um, I think that's a terrific story. So well done to the Scorchers. We look forward to next year's uh, BBL, uh, but not just yet. It's such a long tournament that we do need a bit of downtime. But thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for reading our coverage. And this has been Stump Mike on ESPNCookInfo.com.